You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, towards the back of the New Testament, right before the book of James, before 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and you'll find the book of Hebrews there. Um, we're, today we're looking at one of the kind of most infamous names in the Bible of Melchizedek. And you may remember at the beginning, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter five, a few weeks back, the writer of Hebrews, he brought up Melchizedek. He brings up this Old Testament figure and begins to dabble in who he is and why he matters to these Hebrew Christians and, and why he matters to us. But then he stopped in his tracks. He pulls a 90 degree sharp turn and then he says this in Hebrews chapter five. He says, it's talking about Jesus, that he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then, er, here's the turn. We have a great deal to say about this. And it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. And then he goes in through the rest of chapter five and then all through chapter six, calling them to get out of their spiritual sluggishness and to pay attention to God's word and to abandon the idea of abandoning Christ, to go back to Judaism, to abandon the idea of abandoning the cross and to go back to the temple. And today he goes in here in chapter seven, he brings up Melchizedek again and why he is so important to, the, to these original hearers, to their faith in Christ and why he's important to ours. So by God's mercy, by God's grace, let's not be lazy to understand what this has for us today. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we'll begin in chapter seven, beginning in verse one. And here's what the Holy Spirit says to us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment and the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? 
For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. By your great mercy, may we not be lazy to understand what it is you are saying to us. Help us to see and enjoy and feel our better hope in Christ. And it's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know how some movies, after a series of movies, give the prequel. And then things kind of start to make sense. Not always, but usually the prequel kind of helps things out, like in Star Wars. I have to confess, I had not seen the original 70s and 80s Star Wars movies until last year. Um, Some of you may want to leave now. That's okay. (laughs) They were okay. They were kind of watchable, considering it's the 21st century now. The Force Awakens, which came out as a kind of a fast-forward Star Wars movie, uh, that was enjoyable. That was really watchable. But then Rogue One came out. That was last year, last, last fall. And this one was a prequel to the first 70s Star Wars movie. Now, in that first 70s Star Wars movie, and I'm sure some of you are like, we know this man, you just learned this. Um, well, maybe there's other people out there who haven't seen him. Uh, maybe not. But in that first 70s movie, Luke Skywalker destroys the Death Star, this massive planet-destroying weapon because of the failure in the design. It always seemed a little fetchy, a little sketchy and far-fetched to me that there, he could shoot a blaster and this one little spot in the Death Star, and then that would blow the whole thing up. Oh, how convenient. You know, that's what I always thought. This is kind of lame. But 
hang in here. In Rogue One, in this prequel, they show you that the main architect for the Death Star was actually a good guy. And he built this failure on purpose. It was intentional. He installed a self-destruct feature, if you will, so the good guys could destroy it. It wasn't a lucky move. It wasn't a coincidence. It was designed. It was designed to have an under-the-radar weakness. Melchizedek is exposing the the under-the-radar weakness in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Melchizedek is the intentional design in the sacrificial system, in the priesthood, and in the temple to show that this doesn't work. God designed the temple to end. God designed the priests in the sacrificial system with a weakness. And Melchizedek exposes that weakness. This is why he matters. And Jesus strikes it. Melchizedek is the prequel, the insight. The, the shadow of the fulfillment and Christ and his cross and his empty tomb is the last installment that finishes it. But we got to meet Melchizedek. So let's, let's meet him. Look at verse one, chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham, this is back in the book of Genesis, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Remember that, Melchizedek blesses him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham tithes to him. Now, back in Genesis, Abraham and Melchizedek meet. Just a few paragraphs in in the book of Genesis. And Abraham honors him as the king of Salem, which becomes, you can see it, becomes Jerusalem. And Abraham then tithes to him as a priest, honoring him. So now you could read that and go, okay, great, whatever. I mean, I'm in my Bible reading plan, I, you know, you go through Genesis. I read that recently and I read that and thought, oh, neat. Then studying for this, it was like, whoa, here's why. You got to flex your mind to get your flannel graph Bible timeline in your mind here. Let's just start. Adam and Eve, fast forward, Noah, fast forward, Abraham. We're skipping a lot here, okay? Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, the Levitical priests. But Melchizedek, so you have these Aaron, Levitical priests, the temple, tabernacle, but all the way back here, you've got wedged in Melchizedek, serving as a priest of the Most High God. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Aaron and his sons and their descendants are beginning to offer lambs. This is significant to his argument for these Hebrew Christians, remember, who want to go back to Judaism. He's telling them that there's something better out there. We'll see that in a second. Now, some think Melchizedek was a kind of pre-incarnation visit of the Son of God because it says he was without genealogy, he was without mother, or he was without father. Let's look at him. Look at verse 2. He talks about his name. Who is this guy? Translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's his Hebrew name, Melchizedek. It means king of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem, which we know will become Jerusalem. That is king of peace. Now here he is, verse three. He's without father or mother or genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. So he is not the son of God. This is not a pre-incarnation Jesus because it says he resembles the son of God. He reminds us of Christ. And when it says that he doesn't have genealogies and without father or mother, this doesn't mean he was some kind of alien pod person. 
All he's saying is, we don't know his genealogy. We don't know who his mom was. We don't know who his dad was. We don't have that history, which is uncommon. Because everyone else, right? You read the Old Testament, genealogy, genealogy, genealogy. You know there's a lot of genealogy in the Old Testament, except for this guy. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, it's kind of like he doesn't have a beginning of days. It's kind of like he doesn't have an end of days. It's, it's like his ministry keeps going. And he's showing us why his, why his ministry matters. Because see, look at verse four. See how great this man was. So there's even a little hint there. He did die. But look how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the first official Jew, if you will, the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. This guy tithes to Melchizedek. And if you look back, then he blesses him, right? Verse two, Abraham apportioned him a tenth part of everything. And then what? Do you see the end of verse one? He blessed him. Melchizedek blesses him. So here he's blown away in verse four that this guy, Melchizedek, receives tithes from Abraham. And look at verse five. And those descendants of Levi, so he's like, hey, look, remember these Levitical priests? They receive, they have the priestly office and they get tithes from their, from their brothers. They get tithes from the people, even though they descended from Abraham too. Verse six, but this man, Melchizedek, he doesn't have his descent from Abraham. He's not a Levitical priest. And he receives tithes from Abraham. And Abraham got a blessing from him. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, the Levitical priests, they get tithes from the people. Ab- Here's Melchizedek. Abraham tithes to him. And then Melchizedek blesses him. You know why this matters? Look at verse seven. Here's why this matters. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who's the inferior here? Abraham. Who's the superior here? Melchizedek. Here he says, look how great this man was. Why is he so great? Because he gets ties from Abraham and he blesses Abraham. In a sense, he is Abraham's superior. Showing him honor as this king of righteousness, Melchizedek, showing him honor as this, this priest. And you can already see, just even in Melchizedek's name, that there's this king of righteousness that we find in Christ, this king of peace, this prince of peace that we find in Jesus. Why in the world does this matter, though? You can read this, us as 21st century Gentile Christians, we read this and think, what's the big deal? I read this and go back even further. Why does this Why did this encounter even happen in the book of Genesis? Why did Abraham and Melchizedek meet? Then why did God put it in the Bible? He put it in the Bible, and this encounter happened for these Hebrew Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. He's showing them the weakness in the sacrificial system. Because look at the connection that, that, that he makes. Look at verse nine. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still on the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So here he says, look, we know the Levitical priests get tithes from the people. But he says, you could even say that these Levitical priests, they tithe to Melchizedek because they were still in 
the loins of their forefather Abraham. So these priests that you guys love and you think are so great that you want to go back to, they tithe to Melchizedek. They are superior. They are not superior to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is their superior. They're inferior. So now, okay, I know we can struggle with this. Go, why does this matter to me? Remember, these Hebrew Christians, they're thinking about going back. Thinking about leaving the cross and going back to the sacrifices. Leaving Jesus and going back to the high priest. Leaving the church and going back to the temple. He is systematically showing them that the Levitical priests, the temple, it is inferior compared to this other line of priests, compared to Melchizedek. They tithed to him. Melchizedek blessed them. That there's a line of priests that actually came before Aaron and Levi. And there's a line of priests that still serve today. Because this, this Levitical priesthood, it didn't work. So God put in another one. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He says, look, if the Levitical priesthood would have worked, why did God say that there will be another priesthood in the line of Melchizedek? And this is important. In the Bible, in the law, you could only be a priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. That's what he's going to say. If you skip down, look at verse 14. It's evident that our Lord descended from Judah, not from Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses didn't say anything about them being priests. So how could Jesus be our high priest if he's not from Levi, he's from Judah? Well, we got to also ask the question, well, if Levi worked, why did God say we would need another line of priests? He does say we need another line. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident just systematically walking us through this, that when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, he's talking about Jesus, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So Jesus is a priest, not because of his DNA, that he was born in the line of Judah. How is he a priest? But by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here God is installing a new line of priests, not a temporary one, one not of the tribe of Levi, but of Melchizedek. And this priesthood is forever because this priest has an indestructible life. And this quote in verse 17, this is from Psalm 110.4. It's a psalm about the reign of Christ with the very first verse in Psalm 110 is the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's God the Father speaking to God the Son. And here God the Father speaks to God the Son. Son, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. You know why this is amazing? That while there are priests offering lambs in the temple, while they are lighting the incense, while they are in the courtyard singing, they would sing Psalm 110 at some point too and sing, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, while there are other priests in, in their line of sight, while they can hear the wailing of lambs within earshot. And here they are singing, there's another priest in the order of Melchizedek. One not from Judah. One not from Levi, one from Judah. We're on from Melchizedek, who's superior, whose priesthood is first, 
before Aaron, whose priesthood is last because he has an indestructible life and that Jesus has no end. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek and he's the king of righteousness in that line. And Jesus is the king because he's from Judah. So you see how Jesus is our king and our priest because he was born from Judah and he's a priest like Melchizedek. And God says all this in Psalm 110 while they're sprinkling blood on the altar. Why does God install this new priestly order even while the priests are working? Because there's a better hope. A priest that actually can accomplish the task. The writer of Hebrews is telling them to leave Jesus and to go back to Judaism is to go back to the inferior way of things. To go back to a way that doesn't work. Who cares if it doesn't get persecuted? Who cares if it's accepted by Rome? You are going to something that doesn't work but you can go to the better hope because Jesus is our better hope, our better covenant. Our, he is our guarantee. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He says, look, the sacrificial system was weak, useless. It didn't accomplish anything. 19, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, a better hope. Jesus is our better hope. Jesus is better. This is one of the mega themes of the book of Hebrews and not even just of the book of Hebrews. This is one of the mega themes of the Bible and not even just of the Bible. This is one of the mega themes of the universe that Jesus is better, that everything is for him, everything exists for him and he reigns and rules over all things and he has been given a name above every name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Adam. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't hide. Jesus didn't throw his bride under the bus. Instead, Jesus died for her, the church. Jesus is better than the satanic powers, conquering sin, Satan, and death, hazing them, Colossians 1 says, by dying on the cross, making a public spectacle of them by his death and resurrection. Jesus is better than any other religious leader, teacher, or preacher. Because he is the eternal son of God. He did die for sinners and he did rise from the dead and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he kindly invites us to come to him. He doesn't keep us away at arm's length. His arms are stretched out inviting us to come to him for salvation, inviting him, inviting us to come to him for forgiveness, new life, and inviting us into a joyous eternity alone, by faith alone in him. Jesus is better. He, He's better than our accomplishments. They don't grant us forgiveness. And we need to know, because there are sometimes subtle thoughts in our minds that there is something that we could do that now God would forgive us. There is not anything you could do in the universe that would be impressive enough to God that God would say, I have to forgive you now. Rather, it's all by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith in Christ alone. He did die for my sins and he did rise from the dead. There isn't a noun in the universe that's greater than Jesus. No, no person, no place, no thing superior to Christ. We know he's the king of kings, but we must see that he also is the noun of nouns because he is our better hope, verse 18, for how we draw near to God, verse 19. See, Melchizedek reveals the glitch in the system 
that you can't really draw near to God through the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He's exposing the weakness, exposing the inferior, inviting them to the superior and into Christ, that Jesus, he did unplug the old way of things, that he undid the temple and he undid that priesthood. It was weak, didn't save anyone. And Jesus and only Jesus is how you draw near to God. Do you believe that for real? This matters to these Hebrew Christians because they need to be told again, no, Jesus is the only way we can relate to God. And we must hear too that there are no alternate ways for how we can relate to God. You know what? God only hears our prayers because of Christ. We only receive God's mercy because of Christ. We only receive blessings from God because of Christ. How do you think you relate to God? I mean, there are people in our community, probably even people in our church, sadly, who think they can still draw near to God by being a good person. But you cannot draw near to God by being a good person. You must go to the Son of God himself and his death and his resurrection. So how do you draw near to God? The word covenant just means contract. It's like a deal. We try to make alternative covenants with God, alternative agreements. God should totally bless me. I mean, look how much I've been reading the Bible. God should answer my prayers. Look at how much I've been going to church lately. That's not how God operates. Your works, your good deeds, your ministry, your, your spirituality, these are not better than Jesus. Nothing is better than Jesus. He's the only way. Do you still think that God accepts you because of you or because of Christ, because of your merit? Your hope cannot be in yourself. If it is, you will be devastated. But if your hope is in Jesus, who has an indestructible life, you will have an indestructible joy. Look at verse 21. This one, this Christ was made a priest with an oath by whom it is said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantee. He himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. That because Jesus has this indestructible life and that he is not a corpse, you have a guarantee in your life, locked in with God, that you are forgiven. And we all love guarantees. We get assurance from guarantees that if anything goes wrong, I got a guarantee, got a warranty, I can take it in, they'll make it right, probably, and they'll replace it. <laughs> lifetime guarantees. Oh man, lifetime guarantee. I got this sweet briefcase that even if a stitch pops out, they'll fix it, even replace it if they have to. Guaranteed. You have a guarantee. But this guarantee isn't in case there's problems you know, I'll fix it. That's not this kind of guarantee with God. This is a guarantee that there won't be any problems with you reaching eternity. This is a guarantee that you are saved. This is a guarantee that your sins are forgiven. But it is a lifetime guarantee. But the betterness of this guarantee is that it isn't our lifetime, but Christ's lifetime. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's why there were so many priests, because they kept dying. 24, but he, 
holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Praise God. He continues forever. His indestructible life, never to die again. Jesus is your guarantee. His resurrection in the heavenly places right now is your guarantee. He continues forever. Nothing in this world continues forever. You know the second law of thermodynamics? This is a law, not a theory. Everything breaks down except Christ. He's the only person in the universe who will not succumb to the second law of thermodynamics. But then we will join him. We will rise from the dead. And then we will remain forever with him. But isn't this stunning that Jesus right now remains forever? He continues. That Jesus continues right now serving you from heaven. That even right now, he, he continues, he remains loving us from heaven. Living for us. He remains serving you. He's interceding for you. He, he remains and he's growing you. He continues drawing sinners to himself. I mean, the, the same wonderful heart we see of Christ in the New Testament of how he interacts with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, that same love that he has is the same love that billows from heaven that remains forever for you. The other priests in Judaism, they just die again and again and again. But Christ, he remains. This is why, beloved, we don't need something else. We have Jesus. We have who remains forever. He continues. He isn't diminished. He is the same radioactive redeemer for you. I love verse 25. Consequently, therefore, since he continues forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save to the uttermost our glorious savior. This, this word means that when he saves, he completely saves the whole person, all of you, your whole history, your whole future, the whole deal. And we know what uttermost means. It's a word we don't use a lot, but we know this concept, especially if you've ever interacted with kids on some level. What do we, hey, go clean your room. The whole thing, clean the whole thing. Okay, okay. I'm done. You sure? That seemed pretty fast. Yeah, I cleaned it all up. I'm coming up there. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You come and see everything's just pushed to the sides. All you can see is the floor stuff is stacked on the bed. They did not clean. They just reorganized with style. But Christ, to the uttermost, totally. And, and this word means not just the whole thing, but for all time. So he saves all of you, and then he saves you forever. That his saving power cannot be overturned. His saving blood won't run out. So friends, do not doubt the saving power of Christ. Ever. Do not belittle the lengths his forgiveness will reach to. I know there are things in your life that you just think, I, I mean, did he really forgive me of that? He saves to the uttermost. And maybe you're even struggling this morning. Could he, could he forgive me of that? I mean, I don't, I don't feel forgiven. I don't know if he could forgive me of that. 
yesterday, the woman in the famous Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, she died yesterday. When in the court case, his name is Jane Roe. Her actual first name was Norma. She lived in Katy, Texas, in an assisted living center. She died yesterday. What you may not know about her is that later on in her life, she became a Christian. She professed faith in Christ, was baptized, and became a pro-life advocate. He is able to save to the uttermost. People that you think, oh, they hate God. There's no way. There is a way. He is able to save to the uttermost. And look at what he does for these people that he saves. The end of verse 25. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What an amazing phrase. He always lives to make intercession for them, for you. The Jesus right now, he's alive for you. And we, we learned at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, that he upholds the universe together by the word of his power, that he is holding Saturn and Neptune and nebula galaxies. He's holding them all in place. And then even right now, he is holding the double helix of your, of your DNA. He's holding it all together. And then at the same time, he lives to make intercession for you. Him holding the universe together and him eating, interceding for you are just as much a part of his daily schedule. He loves and he lives to intercede for you. You are precious to him. Every single one of you in Christ. You are not an annoyance to him. You are not troublesome to him. You are not alone. You are not without help. He is sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding on your behalf. Look at who Jesus is, verse 26. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest who's holy. Because the other high priests were unholy, sinners like us. Jesus is innocent. The other high priests were not innocent. They were guilty of sins too. He was unstained. Other high priests were stained, separated from sinners. This doesn't mean Jesus is never around sinners. It means he's not a sinner and that he's exalted above the heavens. This is who Jesus is for us right now. And he has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't have any. And then those for the people. Why doesn't Jesus need to offer up sacrifices? Because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't need to offer up sacrifices anymore. He finished it on the cross when our holy, innocent, unstained Savior offered up himself on the cross and died in our place and rose again from the dead. Do you know why Jesus also doesn't need to offer up sacrifices anymore? Because your sins are already paid for. If Jesus doesn't have to offer up sacrifices anymore, it means he did pay for your sins. That there is not a Christian on this planet whose sins have not been paid for in whole. Already. All of your sins. Ones you don't even know about. That's why I love the line and it is well. That my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
This is the great joy that we get in Christ. I mean, do you see it? And do you feel it? I mean, I think it's great that we can all acknowledge, yes, I see my sins are forgiven. But do you feel it in your bones that you are forgiven by Christ? That all of your sins have been paid for. That now you don't have to schlup around on the earth with this kind of sense of Bible belt guilt. That no, you've been freed in Christ. That you can shout with joy and be satisfied by his unfailing love. This is the joy we have in Christ. This is the only kind of joy you can get with Christ. There is no high priest that could give you this kind of joy. Because he dies. There are no good works you could do that could grant you this kind of joy. Because you know I'm a sinner. I, I, I can't give myself that kind of joy. But our joy has an indestructible quality to it. Because Christ is indestructible. He remains forever. Have you believed that Jesus did this for you? What keeps you from believing and receiving this better hope? What, what keeps you from feeling and rejoicing in this better hope? You know, sometimes prequels are better than the original, but this last installment in Christ is best of all. Joy forever. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.